For October 24th, 2016, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 434, Six Tim Guns. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, and we are never happier than when we're hanging out and talking to each other about our favorite stuff, our favorite movies, TV shows, music, books, comics, video games. Today, we're talking about the Western, the American Western, the long line of the horizon stretching from end to end of that wide cinemascope frame as the sun sets in the distance and a lone cowboy crosses the boundless terrain of the frontier on a solitary horse uh, going one direction, kicking up dust behind him. What a beautiful image. And it has almost nothing to do with what the actual Old West was like or anything about America (laughs) (laughs) or really anything that ever existed ever uh, at all. And we're going to talk about that uh, tonight. A lot of Westerns, a lot of stuff coming out. I I guess uh, we probably won't get to this because I'm not sure we played it, but Red Dead Redemption 2 um, is upon us. Uh, Westworld is a sort of has has its cake, has its sci-fi cake, and eats it Western too. Uh, eats it like Western Whorehouse Saloon too. Uh, the remake of Magnificent Seven with Denzel Washington, um, and and on and on and on. I don't know. It seems in in this moment, it's an election year. There is this strong anti cosmopolitan movement that is not confined to America, but, uh, uh, you know, exists in, uh, you know, many European countries. You can see it in some of French politics, in uh, German politics, in the Brexit vote, and in the the rise of Trumpism here in the United States. Um, it, It seems like we're getting back to basics. We're getting back to what makes America great. And what makes America great is something that never actually existed. It's that lone cowboy riding across that beautiful technicolor cinemascope frame. In just a second, we'll get to that. First, uh, let's introduce the panel. We have Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Are you excited about Westerns, or should I say, yee-haw? I was, was going to do a David S. Pumpkins intro joke, but I figured that would just take us so far off topic that I guess I'll save it for when we do our pumpkin-themed, maybe our Halloween show. We can revisit David Pumpkins, that marvelous sketch uh, character uh, given life by Tom Hanks this week on Saturday it's, Night It's true that next week's show that we'll record it on the 30th is going to drop on Halloween, so it might just be the spookiest overthinking it podcast ever. You can't see I'm dancing. I'm a dancing skeleton right now. It's spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other part of it is Mark Lee. Hey, Mark. Uh, candy Grand for Rather. Uh, candy Grand for Rather. I'm, I'm Rather. Candy Grand for Rather. 
Wait, I forget. I think, what... to, I think you have to, I don't know. I think you have to sign for it. And oh. then it explodes. It explodes. <laughs> hilarious. Kapow. They play the Looney Tunes music when that happens. Oh. We're talking about Blazing Saddles. That's a Blazing Saddles scene. Oh, there you go. I mean, I, I, uh, it's been a minute, actually, since, since I've seen that particular Western, though I gather, Pete, that you have seen it a lot more recently. And I am Matt Rather, uh, your host. Um, think of me as a, as a friendly tavern keeper. We don't want no trouble. We just want to pour our shots of whiskey and uh, all be alive at the, at the end of this podcast, which is an admittedly low bar. So I think we're bound to clear it. Uh, we'll get to the Westerns in just a second. But first, speaking of the Looney Tunes theme, uh, it, it may have been uh, in the news that there is a proposed um, – is it a merger? Is it an acquisition? I'm not totally sure. But I, AT&T and Time Warner um, – there is this proposal that for untold tens of billions of dollars, they will become a, uh, a single company. I guess with AT&T acquiring uh, Time Warner, giving that distribution channel its own content business the same way that Comcast and NBC Universal, uh, NBC Universal was acquired by uh, the Shinehart Wig, no, by Cable Town, no, by Comcast. Um, Recently, so uh, in honor of this, and in honor of the Looney Tunes theme, that what uh, what Time Warner property are you excited to see coming to you on your cell phone, on your AT and T cell phone or internet service? Let me let me put it another way. Panel, your question this week: What is the best synergistic opportunity presented by the uh, AT and T acquisition of? Time Warner. What can we all look forward to in this world that is just a little less free, just a little less diverse, and uh, just a little more like the world Karl Marx envisioned? First in the alphabet, drink. If you're playing the overthinking at drinking game, it's Pete Fenzel. I think you'd have to get Amblin Entertainment on board with this one, too. But having just seen Blazing Saddles, which, as you may recall, involves a really... Uh, non sequitur look at the Warner studio lot. Uh, you may uh, use that as a bit of foreshadowing for what I'm going to bring up because there are some very famous folks who have turned the Warner studio lot over time into a place of cultural celebration, of kind of investigation of both the industry and various forms of comedy. And I think it's about time that we saw we pull back the curtain and we saw the AT&T offices which i'm sure are full of the same sort of wacky antics as happened under the water tower in in magic land over there what i what i'm, what I'm suggesting here is i'm suggesting that we take uh, the animaniacs and pinky and the brain and we set them in the secret windowless AT&T building where they uh pull off all of the telephone traffic to process and send to the NSA right they could listen to all the telephone uh, conversations of everybody in the whole country and brain could constantly be coming up with new ideas for taking over the world based on all the information that he gets i mean uh, you don't even have to get freakazoid involved but you could i mean you could bring freakazoid in uh you know hysteria the hysteria people could come on board i'm just saying that it's it's if the future is vertically integrated telecoms then the future is looking pretty wacky if you bring those animaniacs in there and the great thing is that they probably don't have a choice right because uh it's it's all about the business and and whatnot so I'm excited. I mean, Steven Spielberg might be able to block this deal, uh, but uh, he couldn't get the BFG off the ground. So uh, maybe he doesn't have it in him anymore. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Does, does I, Steven I, Spielberg have a particular amount of sway over the Animaniacs? 
I mean, they were called Steven Spielberg Presents the Animaniacs. Tiny Toon Adventures, Oh, there too. you go. Oh, Yeah, yeah, those were Amblin Entertainment, as oh. well as co-produced with Warner Brothers. Well, so, I mean, here's the thing. Animaniacs was just a little bit after my time, and I always I always respected it more than I watched it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but uh, um, it, I understand that they were... Uh, like locked in the Warner Brothers vault and saw all kinds of Warner Brothers cartoons, right? Or something like that. Like, well, they in- were they were locked on the Warner Brothers movie lot, and they saw all sorts of people who would come and go on the movie lot, right? And they would get involved with like producers and things like that. So, was this a violation of their Animaniac rights? Right. What I'm saying is this: was this a sort of like Clockwork Orange style ultraviolent torture that they went through, where <laughs> like they were just subjected to these relentless images of the comings and goings of the the great and the good on the Warner Brothers studio lot? And would we not be uh, just uh, just continuing, just re-traumatizing the poor Animaniacs by subjecting them to more uh, and and more uh, more intense um, human behavior in in this uh, in this uh, sort of lab that you propose. Well, you know, they do say they give a lot of information about their circumstances in their song. Uh, and and I'm not sure whether the song contradicts with the sort of stated facts of their situation in the show, but I'm tended to lean towards their own voices, right? So they say uh, they are zany to the max. Now, I don't know if you are of the predisposition to consider zaniness. It's not in the DSM, right? It's not a diagnosable mental illness, right? Zaniness uh, and zaniness to the max, right? I mean, to the maximum. That's It's debatable whether that kind of thing is measurable, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, but they say – that the, you you join the Warner Brothers and the Warner Sister dot, then just for fun, they run around the Warner movie lot. But they lock them in the tower whenever they get caught. But they break loose and then vamoose, and now you know the plot. Which is interesting, right? Because later in the Animaniacs song, they, they talk about how they have uh, pay-for-play contracts. Or I think everybody in the show has pay-for-play contracts. So that might be... Locking them in the tower for walking around. I don't know, Matt, you're in the union. If you were signed to do one show at the Warner studio lot and between shows, you would go running around to the other shows and kind of mess with them and, and sit them with seltzer and stuff. Would Warner Brothers be within their rights in the scope of the contract to lock you in the water tower at the top of Warner Studios? I mean, I think really there's probably some very complicated arbitration procedure that they would have to undergo <laughs> in order to like in order to discipline you. It's probably Probably, you know, um, uh, it's probably not, you know, the sort of loss of liberty uh, is probably not in the uh, in the collective bargaining agreement that the studio has that the studio has made with the union. I will say, though, that if you ever have a, a walk on or a drive on pass to a studio lot to go do business there, like, say, you're auditioning for something or you have to meet someone for lunch or something like that. Um, Always, always, always go uh, as as early as you possibly can and just walk on. Because once you have a pass, once you're on the lot, you can just walk around. You know, a lot of the a lot of the lots still have uh, exterior sets, like back lot style exterior sets, so you can walk down like the New York Street or whatever uh, whatever they have, and just kind of kind of stroll around among the stages, seeing seeing people come and go. You know, and uh, on the stage, the people come and go, talking about some TV show. I think T.S. Eliot wrote that. 
the uh the atmosphere is is just wonderful if you're if you're into uh entertainment and i think i took a selfie actually with the warner brothers tower the last time i was on the uh uh the last time i was on the warner's lot um it was uh it's it's you know i don't know it's great and it's there's still they still have this fantastic pull this kind of gravity or this sense of excitement even in an era of decentralized media production even in an era where the second bedroom in my apartment is as much of a production facility as a you know studio soundstage at least as far as our uh, overthinking at youtube channel is con- concerned um when anyone can be their own tv uh channel and tv studio these places are still uh still a little bit magical uh that's that was pete the uh, Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain uh, coming to you on your AT&T phone. Mark, you are next in the alphabet. What is going to be uh, the most productive fruit of the the marriage between uh, AT&T and Time Warner? All right. I'm going to go for a real deep cut here in the pantheon of Time Warner intellectual properties and you know, former corporate entities that have been subsumed into its, uh, into its mass. I'm um, going way back to Turner Broadcasting Systems, or TBS, as uh, you might remember from way back in the day. Um, you know, its related properties include you know, CNN, TNT, um, well, the, the TBS itself, of course, and a lot of other things. And I'm, of course, hearkening back to its uh, famous uh, founder, Ted Turner, who... Um, and for a time, perhaps in the 90s, was one of the most powerful people in all of media and since then has just kind of uh, faded into obscurity as kind of a bit of a recluse, I think. He's no longer sort of like the flamboyant um, uh, media mogul that he used to be, uh, partly because um, you know his corporate entity was subsumed into the orbit of what eventually became Time Warner. Um, but anyway, this is an opp- great opportunity to essentially get Ted Turner out of the vault. Um, I, I suggest that his personality be programmed into an artificial intelligence assistant that uh, you can pull up on your AT&T cell phone, you know, utilize AT&T's great data network, uh, great coverage across all 50 states. And you can ask Ted Turner all sorts of questions, such as, um, you know, uh, what was the greatest part about owning the Atlanta Braves? And uh, were you a good (laughs) husband to Jane Fonda? And uh, what, what what do you truly feel about Rupert Murdoch? Tell us how you really feel. Uh, this, I feel like, are the questions that uh, everybody wants to know, not just me, who grew up in the South in the 90s with, uh, with the shadow of Ted Turner looming above me. But uh, everybody wants to know this, and everybody wa- deserves to have Ted Turner on their phone. This is now possible because AT&T owns Time Warner yeah, and I, all Turner properties. I feel like this is a great... This is a great idea. I mean, I feel like there's a there is a future uh, overthinking a podcast question of the week uh, having to do with which real personality you want to have be your digital assistant on the phone and who you want to answer your questions about the weather or what your next appointment is uh, or tracking your packages or whatever you talk to uh, uh, Amazon's Alexa or uh, Microsoft's Cortana about. Um, but Ted Turner's a good. Uh, uh, Ted Turner's a good place to to start. Like you could ask him if there's anything good on any of his old channels, for example. <laughs> you know, there's a Family Guy rerun on TBS, oh. and another Family Guy rerun after that on TBS. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer is no. <laughs> Yeah, that would be uh, that would be fantastic. And you got to think his personality uh, would be like old crotchety uh, white guy CEO, right? Like, and that that would just be it would be like uh, it would be like uh, funny grandpa on your phone all the time. That would be that would be great fun, I think. 
Yeah, there are, the key to this thing would be a bitterness slider, where he can like, <laughs> max him out, and he just like you know constantly brings up all of his grudges against the the, the corporate overlords who who got one over on him. Uh, then you can get that if you really want it, or if you don't, then you, know, you can turn that off. My answer is um, I, I here's the uh, here's the answer that I was going to give. I was going to talk about uh, Mad Magazine, which is uh, I guess a DC Comics property and uh, DC Comics owned by by Time Warner. I loved Mad Magazine for like 18 months as a teenager. That was my that was my Mad Magazine window, you know. And I feel like it's one of those things like the music of Weird Al, like yeah, like a lot of things where um you sort of pass through it on your way somewhere else. It's like Visalia. No offense to anyone who lives in Visalia, but I'm I'm going uh, skiing up north. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to stop at your fine Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, the um, the uh, the uh, the Mad Magazine phase for me was short, but it was very influential and uh, gave me a great appreciation for stupid jokes, which is why I try to make all of my jokes stupid on this podcast. And I was thinking that, like, with, uh, you know, multi-touch cell phones, you could do the fold-over pages where the, the uh, fold-over, you fold over to reveal a drawing and uh, a truncated bit of text. Um, you could do that by like pinching or dragging or something like that. But then I realized that Time Warner used to, before it was uh, Time Warner, uh, it used to be known by another name. Uh, before it was Time Warner, and after it was Time Warner the first time, it was known by the name AOL Time Warner. And once I heard that, I realized, uh, I realized that I have, to, uh, I have to go with AOL. I want to resurrect the glory days of AOL um, as a mobile uh, as a mobile app. Now I realize I mean, there, there that, is an that, AOL app. Yeah. Are you aware that in 2015 AOL was bought by Verizon? Oh, uh, were they? Oh, yeah. So they're already owned by a telecommunications company, and they include the Huffington Post among other things. Here's what I want: I want Verizon to acquire AT and T. And, so they can use AOL and corporate corporate restructuring. Yeah, this is how out of it I am for something that was so influential uh, to me. I, like like Mad Magazine, AOL was a phase that I passed through. But you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to live there. Um, I'm but though there are a surprising number uh, there are a surprising number of people that I meet that still use an AOL email address. Um, but I I want to I want to resurrect the glory days, not just the mail uh, that the app that that they have. And so I, so I suppose that uh, Verizon either um, sells it back to Time Warner or uh, AT&T acquires Verizon uh, against all kinds of, of monopolistic safeguards uh, and rejiggers the corporate structure so that Time Warner is once again AOL Time Warner. And uh, I want the walled garden internet because it seems like that's, that's where we're headed anyway. This is the, this is the larger point I wanted to make here. We're actually back in the era of AOL, right? By, by about 1988, 1989, uh, uh, no, uh, the uh, 1998, 1999, this is how, how old I've gotten. The decades are all blending together for me. Um, 
the there was the actual internet and why would you use AOL anymore you had the actual internet at you know colleges and starting to get penetration into people's homes and and uh uh by the 2000s that that game was over but it seems like we've gone back to that uh to that model where you have like an app uh except now it's not AOL it's Snapchat right and your news your communication your uh uh entertainment, um, you know, sort of in special interest groups of various kinds. I mean, AOL used to be keywords, right? And it's almost like with hashtags, it's almost back, uh, the idea of like keywords and uh, trending topics and, and things like this. Uh, or Facebook, right? Like Facebook wants to own end-to-end your news distribution, your communication with your friends, uh, instant messaging, uh, which was another place that AOL shined in the, in the, uh, in the early days. We're back to the walled garden internet. We're back to uh, that old, uh, old model. So let's call it what it is. It's uh, it's AOL, and I guess this merger, um, I, I guess uh, this merger is not it. But I speak of the merger that is to come after this one. Uh, I am not worthy to fasten the sandal on the uh, on the bike messenger who brings a notarized copy from one Manhattan office building to another. That merger will will complete the cycle of locking down everything that was good uh, about the internet. All right, Westerns. But first, before we get to Westerns, I want to say one thing. I know we've had some technical problems with our podcast feed. Um, Recently, uh, I am the uh, lone software engineer working on overthinking it. So you have no one to blame but me. But that also meant that I was uh, trying to work on uh, a solution. And I think I've got it. Uh, if you're technically oriented, it has to do with hyper uh, with HSTS, uh, HTTP, strict transport security, and uh, our subdomains. We had HSTS turned on briefly for all of our subdomains and we don't host all of our subdomains. So that was, that was a bad move and has caused some problems, but I think we have good SSL certificates installed on our, uh, RSS subdomain. So all of your feed readers, all the Android ones that we're having problems downcast on iOS and the Apple podcast app should be able to access the overthinking at podcast feed correctly now. And if you can't, uh, Give me an email at podcast at overthinkingit.com and uh, tell me what technical setup you're using and what the, uh, like some screenshots would be helpful, the sorts of, tell, or uh, description of the sorts of errors that you're seeing. I'm sorry that it happened. Um, it was stupid. It was a mistake and it was mine. But uh, I think I've I think I've got you covered now. And uh, quick, go back, download all of those uh, download all of those episodes that you missed for uh, a couple weeks. All right, now from uh, uh, 1999 back to 1899 and uh, and earlier even the westerns, the American West. Pete, I gather that you had the occasion to see Blazing Saddles with a Q&A with the master himself, Mel Brooks, recently. Could you tell us uh, a little bit about that experience, how, how, how it came to be and, and what it was like? Yeah, sure. So there's a company that does this, and it's touring, so you might be able to see it in your town, potentially, where they will bring a movie, an older movie, and a star or a director or a big personality associated with that movie uh, 
to a big theater. And this was at the Wang Theater in Boston, which holds a couple thousand people, I think. Really, really, you know, big theater. We're up in the up in the nosebleeds, not quite the nosebleeds, but but up there. Um, you know, great seats for watching a movie. I mean, you don't have to really see the stage so much. It's not it's not that important. And you can still see that you can still we had I liked our seats. They were good. But the point being that you're not in a movie theater where, you know, it's it's um big cushy seats right or where the sort of like the view to the screen is kind of equidistant you're in a theater theater right so you're you're sitting in these tiny seats but everything feels very fancy and uh you go in there and there's a kind of a a pre-roll of trivia associated with the movie and pictures of mel brooks and then you all watch the movie and you know that it's a huge audience of enthusiasts right everybody's really psyched so there's you know applause when all the cast members show up and people cheer and clap for the good scenes and that's great and then when it's over mel brooks and his kind of biographer live show companion guy because mel brooks is getting on in years uh come out on stage and mel brooks basically told stories from his life he focused on stories true life stories in terms of the making of the movie and also other things particularly from the early part of his life so his childhood and then up through his early days in show business i think the farthest he got in the future other than talking about the zombie survival guide written by his son was talking about uh history of the world part one and some of the actors that cross over between both places. But it was a really cool evening. And uh, it, it invited you to watch a movie alongside a lot of other people that included a lot of very dated content. Um, and it's 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 interesting to call it dated, right? Because, I mean, you've seen Blaze, you've all seen Blazing Saddles, even though, Matt, you haven't seen it in a long time, right? Yep. Okay. So, like, I mean, I guess, I guess we don't have to like spoil it. I suppose I've already sort of spoiled it. Blazing Saddles doesn't really have a coherent plot in certain ways per se. It it's not of, uh, right. It's not. It's a. Uh, it's a western. It's a like a parody western, and the sheriff is yeah. black. That's that's right. there. It is. That's the logline for the thing. Well, I mean, to to add to it, it's a parody, but all like all the Mel Brooks parodies, and I think that this is really because this there's so many different angles on western. It's you got to really narrow it down a little bit. But when I think about where the western is today i think about a an effort to make it very self-consciously in touch with contemporary concerns and sensibilities not that it ever wasn't really in touch with contemporary concerns and sensibilities but as in contemporary changed right and and to a, to a certain point there sort of developed little centers of gravity at various points in the history of the western where you would be concerned with like the Sergio Leone western or you'd be concerned with like the Tom Ford western or what have you uh but but now there's this real sense of like how can we reinterpret the to- the, and reinvestigate the, the, the Tom Ford western would be like oh. a fashion show uh <laughs> sorry i mean the John Ford the John Ford western would be, yeah <laughs> I think though though yeah. i like the Tom Ford western the it spends all the time in the the saloon the brothel, the you know bordello, uh, and really just focuses on the uh, wonderful outfits that the ladies of the evening wear. I think the best one is uh, six Tim Guns. <laughs> right, it's great. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, but Blazing Saddles is is also a kind of contemporary movie that's looking to cast light on how much white people are uncomfortable with black people and and get uh, upset. And angry when they show up and particularly get upset when they're given positions of authority. And Mel Brooks, one of the stories he told was about how he knew that to the, the original, by the way, the original name of Blazing Saddles. Can you guys guess? Do you have any guess what the original name of Blazing Saddles was when he saw the screenplay? Uh, it's pretty clear. Guess who's coming to. Uh, I don't know. No, it was called Tex X. Like huh. Malcolm X. 
tweets, but with texts. And I'm sure it's it's very changed. I think it was just like a 20 page treatment or something that they bought. But the point is that um, that Richard Pryor is a co-writer on uh, on Blazing Saddles and he was going to star in it, but he could not because due to his drug problems and his sort of uh, outlandish personal behavior outside of using drugs, um, the, the he couldn't get insurance. Like they couldn't get insurance for him starring in the movie. <laughs> yeah. And so the studio wouldn't do it. So they had to find somebody they could insure. Uh, and, and so and they found a Broadway actor who's awesome. But but the point is that. He found Richard Pryor to help write the movie. And this is where Blazing Saddles feels really contemporary and I think really worth talking about because he felt that Mel Brooks felt that this particularly because the N word was involved and it had to be involved because a lot of it is about the violence, the the the, the verbal and the and the physical and the social violence that black people are subjected to by white people who think they're just being normal. And that's a lot of what the joke is, right? Is that like the little old lady shows up and like says horrible things to him and then like bakes him a pie to thank him for being the sheriff and then is like you're not going to tell anyone that that i was with you right like and and it's just this this just seamless shifting back and forth from utter hostility uh to to sort of ingratiation uh but they they enlisted richard Pryor to do it because they wanted to have that authentic they wanted to be able to have him be responsible for the agency of the saying of the controversial things and the, and and sort of to rubber stamp they basically said we're not going to be able to speak to this story in a way that's acceptable because we're not going to know when we're crossing the real lines that can't be crossed and we need you to come in and tell us is this okay is this not okay we're using the n-word in this scene we're not using it in this scene uh how does that work right and they and of course they're like well richard Pryor, he's a guy who could make these kinds of decisions and as a result i feel like blazing saddles despite being like hugely offensive uh i mean blazing saddles is more homophobic and ableist uh <laughs> and i would say it is racist um, it is certainly racialist. It certainly speaks to a divided racial. You know, and I don't know if I've talked about that in the podcast in a long time, but just to step back and I got to calm down because I was, I was so excited to see Mel Brooks. Guys, it was so great. I've loved Mel Brooks since I was a little kid, you know, with Spaceballs and History of the World Part One and and all those great movies. Robin Hood Men in Tights is so good. And uh, so I'm really excited thinking and talking about this. Um, but but uh, yeah, to like. Oh man! Now, now I'm, I'm like uh, I'm like wistful. And no, I kind of get get, get fired up again, Pete. It was <laughs> you know like the like the cowboys eating beans around the around the campfire in the in the, the first movie to incorporate fart noises. They said. Oh when, really? When, yeah. yeah wow. So they the, couldn't they couldn't go to the Foley Library and just get a bunch of uh, just get a bunch of canned fart noises. They had to actually produce those themselves <laughs> somehow. I mean, can you imagine the the engineer, the like the sound effects person who uh, whose job that was, and what a uh, what a what an honor it must have been, and yet how that person never could have told their uh, their friends about it what what they were what they were doing or like people wouldn't people wouldn't understand i'm sorry you made fart noises all day and you got paid a white collar salary for doing that i all right i guess i'll just go back to being a stevedore and not resent you for the rest of my life um <laughs> that uh yeah it's well the the idea of like what is <sighs> What is racist? What is racialist? I mean, this is, you know, it's it's funny, right? Like very often things that are tolerant of difference um, end up 
casting the difference in a larger framework, uh, casting the tolerance in a larger framework of, of intolerance of different kinds of difference, right? Like, uh, here, uh, the, the best example I can give is, is John Milton's Areopagitica, which is his impassioned defense, um, quite forward thinking uh, at the time. Right, his impassioned defense of freedom of speech, uh, except for Catholics, because then we burn. Right, right. The, ca- the Catholics, uh, the Catholics are not allowed in our uh, polity, and, and uh, so so everyone really, even if it's anti anti monarchy or anything, like we should be able to have freedom of speech, except for the except for the Catholics, and it, this is a this is an important. I mean, I have more to say about this, Pete, but but I, I don't want to take the wind out of your sails. Talk talk a little bit more about yeah, so, so to make the distinction, and this is what I learned when I was in college and taking classes in uh, theories related to this sort of thing. So I'm sure that other people have different ways of defining it, but. My the way that I think of it is that the difference between racism and racialism is that both ideologies, as it were, or both sort of like both sort of patterns of patterns of thought, ways of thinking, what have you, um, are associated with there being some sort of underlying cause, whether it's inherent or not, for humanity to be divided up into these groups, right, that are called races. Um, And they're ethnic, and they have phenotypical characteristics, and we're all pretty familiar, I think, with, like, how they're generally defined. And the difference between the two uh, is that in racism, there's a subordination, right? There's this race is good at this and bad at this, and this race should be in charge, and this race should not be in charge. And then racialism and racialist theories would say, well, that humanity is split up inherently into these races, but uh, they're not – they don't no, – no, none of them ought to or, or is in charge, right? Uh, so something could, could be racialist but not be racist if it doesn't sort of distance itself. Now, can't, it, I think when we talk about things like Plessy v. Ferguson versus Brown v. Board of Education, we can start thinking that like maybe saying that it's okay for it to be separate, like a separation does imply – a subordination in a lot of different ways, right? There's a lot of mechanisms where if you say, well, let's acknowledge that people are separated into these inherent groups, uh, you're going to bet that some of them are going to get in charge and some of them are not going to be in charge. So it's not really a great solution. Uh, and in particular, leaning on the inherent side, it's not a great solution because, uh, you know, this, this oversimplifies the complex relationships and genetic variants, which is much, much larger between individual people than it is within races. And races are kind of, you know, it's dubious that they actually exist in certain ways and, and they're really, really reinforced culturally and all this stuff. But the point being that, like, Blazing Saddles has a lot of jokes about black people and white people and Chinese people and Irish people. Uh, and a lot of them are cruel and, and it's it's very old fashioned. It's incredibly old fashioned. But yet in certain ways, it feels more current than the more sanitized Mel Brooks movies of the 90s because it portrays the subordination. Right. So like it includes racists. There are race. There are very strong, very verbal, very direct racists in Blazing Saddles. They are characters in Blazing Saddles and they are mostly lampooned for being stupid and for being cruel and uh, for, for being incompetent and for being violent. Um, 
and oppressive, right? Uh, the, the 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 scene where you know the the Bart and his buddy are driving a rail car to they send the black people to test whether the rail lines are on quicksand, and they are on one of those hand pump rail cars, and the car falls in the quicksand, and the two guys fall in the quicksand, and they're really scared of dying in the quicksand, and they're yelling for help, and then this guy, you know, this white guy rolls over with a lasso. It's played by Slim Pickens, throws the lasso in pulls out the rail car and leaves them to their own devices, right? So there's a real cruelty there. But the movie is trying to portray their cruelty as, as like, well, this is clearly not the way that it ought to be, right? This is very unjust. This is just absurd in how nasty it is. And it's interesting to think of the different sentiments surrounding it. Oh, you know, you can't use the N-word and you can't, uh, you can't do these things because it's racist, is an oversimplification to an extent. But of course, if you're not experiencing it, like Richard Pryor has a lot of credibility to speak to, uh, you might not necessarily be able to say or determine. You can step over the line really easy. Uh, so it's tricky, right? It's tricky. This this idea of like, you don't think you're racist, but you really are. Uh, the way in which the, the culture gets kind of sanitized of things, um, Blazing Saddles feels more current in that respect. Uh, right. It, it would be like a, a movie where a woman walked down the street and she was constantly getting catcalled like that never happens in Friends. Right. I mean, there's probably the one where Rachel gets catcalled, but like there's not one where like you know, I don't I don't think of it as like every time one of the girls from Friends goes outside, someone's going to make really suggestive sexual comments to her because it's New York. Right. Like I don't think of that as a reality for them. And so, of course, when you ask people, do they believe that this is the way things really are? They're not going to think it is if they haven't experienced it themselves because the culture doesn't reflect it as happening. And so there were certain ways. And then again, of course, then Blazing Saddles also has a character named Mongo who appears to be mentally uh, disabled in some way. And it's like, yeah, then it throws all its goodwill about being egalitarian right in the toilet, right? Because uh, he's like a super strong, because that's that's just awful. That's just so offensive. Um, and it's, of course, there's a lot of gay jokes near the end, which are also really offensive. But like, um, and, and and not in a way that is oversensitive to call it that, right? Like uh, one where a bunch of dancing guys say, come on, girls, and run down the stairs with their sticks and start hitting the cowboys. But um but yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. To think <laughs> but that's about. a that is a, a sort of uh, that's an instance of breaking the third wall because right, like spoiler alert, what happens is the film. I mean, like you could there. It's possible to to develop a reading of the film that really absolves it of all of this because of the way that it ironizes it at the end. Right. The yeah. the the in, what happens is that the camera pulls back to real to reveal that this is a film being shot on the Warner Brothers lot and that there are other films being shot on the Warner Brothers lot one of them is a like Fred Astaire type dance thing with a bunch of male dancers in tuxedos the uh, the joke being that they're all gay and Dom Dom DeLuise uh, I think they're as their director shouting gay slurs at them and then and then the the gay dancers start fighting with the cowboys and it's about you know, you know right like and then and then more movies and the whole um uh the whole lot gets involved it's uh you know it's it's interesting like it's interesting i don't know i'm not sure what 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 was the level of sophistication with which mel brooks himself uh 
discussed these issues or did he bring them up at all? Was hit, were his comments going in a no, different direction? He didn't, he didn't talk about it. Um, it's interesting because I didn't know that apparently you could submit questions from the audience, but I didn't know how there were apparently some cards in the lobby that I you should have used out. the AOL app on your, yeah. uh, <laughs> and I have a feeling that he would have avoided them. Um, yeah, his, his, his level of sophisticated, he, he mostly was reminiscing. He was speaking to memory and not his, I guess he did talk about the Richard Pryor thing. And he talked about how how he gave the script to John Wayne because he wanted John Wayne to play the Gene Wilder character of the Waco kid and wow, how John Wayne really? said, oh my gosh, yeah. And that John, because he wanted movie. <laughs> the one thing he did speak to with sophistication is he spoke to. Uh, uh, oh, I wrote down I wrote down some great quotes and i'm going to bring this up right now on my little on my phone which is not verizon it's t-mobile so when deutsche telecom buys uh 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 what the zines that are made down on cambridge common then i'll be able to so, do some while you're looking it up pete uh just an anecdote uh on john wayne and his, his uh, close to being cast in this uh in blazing saddles he declined the part of the waco kid doing the film too blue for his family-oriented image, but he assured Mel Brooks that he would be the first one in line to see it. I am, of course, reading from the Wikipedia page here. But, and that uh, is exactly what Mel Brooks said. In that's amazing. But he also said that he never told that to anyone before. He said that before everything he said. He's like, I've never told an audience this before, but I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> <laughs> ever, ever the showman, right, uh, Mel Brooks? Yeah. and yeah, think- you know, I, I would be shocked if he weren't embellishing things in that way. So the one word, one, one of the phrase, the two phrases that stuck with me where he was talking about uh, being sort of mentored in some way or talking to a producer that he really respected about whether Blazing Saddles could really follow through on some of its more aggressive jokes. Like when there's an old lady who gets punched in the stomach a whole bunch of times and there's a bunch of things that happen in the movie that would grate on, uh, you know, kind of uh, not jaded sensibilities uh, of sort of of an American standard sort when you think of the 70s. Uh, He said, Mel, if you go up to the bell, ring it, which I thought was a really cool idea. This idea that if you if you put out this thing that's like related to all this, this joke could be out there. He says, ring the bell. Right. Which is not the advice that a lot of people give you these days. And then the other one that that stuck with me was he said and he was describing the Waco kids uh, stuff. And he said, funny is not the measure. Right. Like there were scenes that he cut from the movie uh, and and they cut from the movie. There was one of the sex scenes. There were some even bluer jokes. And he cut him from the movie because he thought that it was it was too ungrounding or the kids were not going to appreciate if kids watch it it would be way too gross or something. And And he said funny is not the measure. And he did go into this idea that he wanted the Waco kid to be that cowboy and he wanted him to be older he wanted it to be an older grizzled jaded real western actor rather than gene wilder uh who could lend some authenticity to the part and they actually cast one in it but he was an alcoholic and couldn't get through the first day of shooting so then he called gene wilder who showed up at a at, on short notice i mean the- you want authenticity right yeah yeah <laughs> you get an alcoholic I know. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's what it was. It was like, well, he was an alcoholic, so he can play an alcoholic, but he's not an alcoholic anymore. And then the first day of shooting, he couldn't say his lines. Right. And that's what Mel Brooks was talking about. But but yeah, I guess I guess the big takeaway from all this is that the West, the story of the West has a, a whole ton. I mean, it's also a story of genocide. Right. Like to an extent. It's not the only thing that happened, but it's one of the things that happened is this the displacement and and subjugation and in many cases annihilation of people by other people who saw it as their destiny and their right to own this land. 
right? And uh, and a lot of Westerns have had to, a lot of Westerns have celebrated this. <laughs> a lot of them have struggled with it. The better ones tend to struggle with it. And uh, and but even the ones that have struggled with it historically have benefited from the sort of casual de facto white supremacy of the general media. Right. Being like, well, you know, it's okay for all the heroes and all the people to be white people. And, you know, Mel Brooks plays an Indian chief, right? A Native American chief of the Sioux Nation in Blazing Saddles. And he speaks Yiddish as the as the as the Sioux chief. Uh, Like like that's the kind of thing that you can kind of get away with. Right. Um, With contemporary audiences. But it's also like pretty offensive if you were Native American. Right. Uh, And and more than offensive. I was I thought I thought you were about to say that was the kind of thing you could get away with. In 1974. Well, yeah, in 1974, you could totally get away with it. Totally. Nowadays, you couldn't get away with it. Well, I don't even know what Seth MacFarlane does in his movies because I didn't see that one. But uh, the 150,000 Ways to Bomb in the West or whatever that movie was called. <laughs> um, but the point, the point being that, like, how are you going to, as a Western, retcon, rethink, rework the genocidal aspect of the Old West story? Right? And, I, and I love... Westerns. Uh, I've I've come to love them. Uh, After watching Breaking Bad, I went on this sort of grand tour of of a whole bunch of Westerns, and and I've come to really like them, Um, even the ones that are really difficult sometimes uh, in in terms of being morally problematic, like The Searchers, right? I I read that. I watched that. I was like, wow, there's a lot in here that's really interesting uh, and sad and uh, and, and difficult and painful, but like worth it. Um, but how are you as a modern Western going to deal with this heightened awareness uh, of this idea of kind of social problem? Right. I mean, does this is this anything? I haven't seen any any Westworld, uh, but I know Mark's been watching Westworld. Does this relate to Westworld at all? Do they go into this sort of stuff? Or- um, Matt and I both have seen Westworld, I think. And uh, I'm going to say at least for the first three episodes that have aired so far, not excluding the, the fourth one, I think that it's airing tonight. I'm going to say no. That it doesn't engage with it at all. I mean, like not directly, right? I I would say that there are um, a smattering of Native American characters that show up um, as uh, NPCs, essentially in the uh, in, in the video game like atmosphere uh, or, or theme park atmosphere of Westworld, um, and they are threats uh, to the the predominantly almost entirely white guests that come to the park to enact their Wild West fantasies. Um, I I mean. Uh, we'll see where the show goes with this, but uh, Westworld, I think, is primarily concerned with um, this notion that we are uh, modern life has alienated ourselves from uh, from our, our true natures, um, and that the setting of the Western uh, allows people to uh, self actualize uh, in a way that usually involves having a lot of sex and shooting people with guns. That I think is the primary thrust of Westworld, and and. And maybe it's engaging with this idea of the Native American genocide in a way that I'm not fully picking up, but uh, that's my take on it. Matt, what do you, Matt, what do you think about Westworld? I mean, I think you have to conceive of the the you have to kind of do a couple mental transformations and you have to conceive of the non-player characters uh, as a slave race, right? And this is, I mean, this is the idea, this is the science fiction idea at, that seems to be at the core of it. I, I haven't seen tonight's yet, but I, 
seen all the episodes so far. And like the idea that these uh, that these robots develop consciousness, right? Like the idea that that the artificial intelligence becomes uh, sentient and can have rights, um, or or should be considered. Like, I mean, the the science fiction question is at what point in that gray area do we start to consider uh, that person an end and not a means to use uh, Kantian terms, or uh, do we start to consider that there are sort of rights that adhere in this, um, you know, in this uh, uh, being's um, self-awareness, right? Uh, so if you look at it, I mean, if you look at it this way, like what, what the, the question, I mean, the interesting question, the way Pete fr- frames it is where do you draw the line between us and them? And who are the us uh, that we can be triumphalist about and who are the them that we can slaughter with impunity, right? And yep, yep. This, this is different. This is, this is sort of different in all, all Westerns and, and it's problematized differently and, you know, the, the good one. I won't even say the good ones. The ones that are interested in this question uh, because a lot of good ones are not at all interested in this question and yeah. are interested in sensation. And that's okay, right? Like, you know, to, to the extent that they are uh, that to the extent that they are exploitative and sensory and what you know whatever like that that is a thing that that you can enjoy. I mean, I hope you'll be a little reflective about it afterwards and sort of wonder about your enjoyment and wonder about uh, about those entertainments. But like you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I try to be not one to look askance at another person's pleasures. Um, Right, like uh, otherwise, like we would never have a Super Bowl episode of this podcast. Uh, but like, okay, uh, in the in Westworld, right, the robots are so disposable that there are actually kind of disturbing scenes of like corpses being washed and and uh, you know stacked up robot corpses, of course. But they look uh, they look human, and that they sort of engender the feelings of uh, they engender in you the feelings. Of, uh, the, of sympathy that you would have for uh, human bodies in that in that terrible uh, terrible condition, and so that's the right. That's the sort of that's the sort of line, right? Like, and and that line is also the frontier, right? Like, where where is the frontier? Who is us? Who is them? These are all sort of interesting questions that that you can ask. One one of the reasons, like, despite being really troubling, one of the reasons the Searchers is so good is that you know John Ford, who made Stagecoach and who made My Darling Clementine, who made these like er westerns, um, seems to be asking in that like, well, what is us and what is them? Right. And is that boundary a lot more permeable than than our fixed identity categories might be comfortable with? Um, You know, right. And there's that beautiful shot at the end where John Wayne is on the outside of the house and then turns around and leaves. And you're like, oh, John Wayne is them. He's not us. Right. Well, this. okay. so this is like I I would have framed the master narrative of the Western a little differently from from the way that that you framed it in terms of like, who can we slaughter? Right. Like, who who can we uh, 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 who can we kill? Um, To me, like it centers on the cowboy Uh, and that that cowboy figure is the like a uniquely American fi- like the the American story that I think a western tells is about this uniquely American figure uh except except it's not it's a critique of enlightenment liberalism and and 
let's get to that if we can. But like, it's a uniquely American figure who, uh, on whom the community rests, but but who is excluded by virtue of the very crucial services he provides from being a member of the community, right? In the searchers, the last shot, the camera is inside the house, inside the community, inside the family, inside society. John Wayne is outside of society. In My Darling Clementine, right, you stay in the town, you stay in Tombstone with Clementine, right, in this over-the-shoulder shot, and Henry Fonda as White Earp rides away right the camera and the viewer who is part of the society that that this is a foundational myth of um can't abide the presence of the sheriff the cowboy the the specialist in violence uh who can do the things that the society can't do for itself in order to um in order to uh preserve the society and in i mean in a country that was built on the backs of slaves right the idea of an original sin making possible this egalitarian social mythology um is is particularly resonant and and so for me that's the sort of i mean for me that's the us and the them right it's it's always the sort of the lone cowboy ver- and the uh, uh, and the society or societies, different different kind of groups, uh, good groups, bad groups, whatever. Like individual versus group is what I see as as being the trauma. And we, you know, and this is something that everyone can identify with a little bit because there's always this sense that you have of being an individual, kind of opposed to uh, a group at various times. Um, like you're you're always the cowboy of of your own life. Um, you're not actually a cowboy and that's, that's good. (laughs) Don't, don't, uh, don't, uh, try to be, but like, uh, it's, it's at least a psychological myth that you can, that you can relate to. And that's, I, I don't know, Pete, that's the, that's the kind of the, er, uh, story of the, the Western that, that I see. And as far as that story, I'm not totally sure yet. Um, where where Westworld comes down, except that it seems to be like a story about uh, productizing that experience, right? Like everyone gets to come to this sort of theme park peopled by robot NPCs who uh, uh, who are the subaltern race who are there to kind of gratify your impulses for sex and violence and sensation of various uh, adventure, uh, uh, danger, sensation of various kinds. Yeah, and you saying that really makes me think about both Blazing Saddles and also Magnificent Seven, which I saw a while ago, but which I didn't talk about much on the, the podcast. The newest remake the, of the new remake Seven. of the Magnificent Seven, which is related to all this stuff. Where when you think about the two figures of the black sheriffs, right? Although he, in Magnificent Seven he's a warrant officer and not a sheriff, but um, when you think about the the sheriff riding in on the horse scene in Blazing Saddles is amazing uh, because the joke is he's got a Gucci saddlebag and he's wearing <laughs> like a posh, you know, I think it's ve- like a velvet or velour kind of cowboy tracksuit kind of thing. Uh, and he rides in on his horse, which is decked out, right? And and uh, it's to jazz music. And as he rides through this, the, br- the brush, 
Count Basie and a big band are there, right? Not only are they playing, but they're physically present. They're the on screen. Count yeah. Basie is playing a big white grand piano, right? Like uh, I think, I think, and and like, and basically, like they greet him and they congratulate him, right? And this idea of like, I am the cowboy, I am the outsider, I I am the the person as you, as you talked about, sort of being deputized in this situation to be the agent of violence. Right. And there's a glorification in this, as well as there's also a sort of sublime tragedy to it in certain ways. But Blazing Saddles connects that not with let's look back at the Old West and find the idea of a black guy in the Old West and joke about that prejudice. He says it in terms of like, let's look at a black guy now in 1974. Right. And and we're going to use the Old West as a way of talking about his experience. And and when we're going to put him on the horse, we're not going to make any delusion, any any we're not going to be under any delusions that this isn't, you know, glorifying him in the here and now rather than in the back then. Whereas with Denzel Washington, right, Denzel Washington is a superimposing figure. He's got this black hat. He's got this all black outfit. He rides through with his sort of very measured, very controlled. He's the arbiter of morality. He is the good guy. He is definitely the good guy in the Magnificent Seven remake. And he has this sense of of, of poise and of power to him, as he as he so often does as a performer. Uh, I mean, he in a different in a different era, he would have made a ton of westerns. He makes a great cowboy, uh, but of course, it's not a different era, and of course, he's black, which complicates things. But this idea of like the black sheriff in the old west is very different from like the black man of today as the sheriff in the old west. But they're both related to what you've talked about as the old west as a cowboy centric genre. Right. As like as a genre defined by its lead characters, uh, right, rather than by its circumstances. Uh, and, and what does it mean for them to be excluded? What does it mean for it to be cowboys and not cowgirls? And then you're in like Quick and the Dead with Sharon Stone and stuff. Right. But like uh, what does it mean that only a certain group of people get to play these parts? Uh, and then looking at contemporary Westerns, it's like we got to start spreading that out a little bit. And the Medicine Seven is like that uses the college, uh, the college brochure strategy of like, let's get a group of people and just make one of them of each ethnicity. And then everyone's good. Right. So uh, the, the which, United Colors of Benetton ad strategy. Yeah. Right? Which which I think they do a, a lot of interesting things with it, especially with, of course, the wonderful Vincent D'Onofrio character, who's always the best part of anything he's in. Uh, well, that's not true. He's often the best part of many things that he's in. Although, you know, whether he outdoes Denzel Washington in a Denzel Washington movie is, is hard to say because he's, he, play, he gets to play a character actor. He doesn't have to be the lead. But he's a genocide. He's a guy who, in The Magnificent Seven, Vincent D'Onofrio plays this character who, back in the day when it was legal, would scalp Native Americans for money. Like, the federal government would have a bounty on scalps. And this is a guy who'd got hundreds of scalps. Right. And so he's known as a genocidal maniac. Um, but he's sort of this weird brain addled, like frontiersy old man who doesn't seem to have much connection with civilization at all uh, and just seems to sort of sputter and talk about the Bible in weird ways. And, and the movie takes him on an interesting path. Are you sure I haven't talked about this on the podcast before? I feel like I have. You haven't, no. Deja vu. So, so just to mention it, just to mention because it it's really great, is um, he – is uh, he he meets his end um, in the new Magnificent Seven movie. And I'm not sure what happens in the older ones because I haven't watched the American old one in a while and I've never watched the Japanese old one. But um, he's he basically uh, 
is, is confronts the evil. The bad guys have a Native American henchman, and the good guys have a Native American rebel sniper guy. And so there's two Native Americans, and eventually they have to fight because it's not appropriate for any of the white guys to kill either of them in the movie. That's the kind of rules that the movie operates under because it's dealing with the problematization of these historical assumptions, right, about uh, what is okay and to kill in a Western. And the way they do it is they just sort of make characters match up conveniently so that all the deaths that happen happen the right way. And one of them is that is that uh, this guy who's been spouting the Bible for a lot of the uh, a lot of the movie. At one point, people try to steal things from him, and he talks about how he's a, it's it's right for him to be able to take back something that was taken from him. Right? He's this sort of Old Testament sense of justice. And he pulls his gun on the Native American, and he says something to the effect of like, "We've been sent here to cleanse the earth of evil." Right? And then the Native American kills him. Right? And as he's dying. He looks up at, at heaven and there's this moment of realization and Vincent D'Onofrio brings it about with great sublimity where it's like, oh, I was the evil. I'm the <laughs> one who's being cleansed. And it's just like, oh, it's an eye for an eye. I killed them. Now I live by the sword, die by the sword because I went out and I killed the Native Americans. I've now been killed by a Native American and I'm going to die in the dust right alone. Uh, OK, and he comes and he has this moment of peace and he just sort of slumps over and dies sitting up. Right. And it's just like, OK, you know, like, no, again, I'm importing it, but it's pretty it seems pretty dead on. But that's the kind of revi- not revisionism, cause that's the wrong way of putting it. But that's because it's not like, again, this was there's nothing like John Ford is not an authoritative original version. Right. This is all revision. Um, but the newest interpretation of this kind of story looks for ways to deal with the historical symbols. Right. In ways that kind of that are okay, right? That that work, that are all right with audiences. And also that just I think feel feel okay and and are okay for conscientious storytellers. Yeah. Just right? a, like, brief, um, sorry, Mark, but before you jump in, brief well actually, John Sturgis directed the Magnificent Seven in nineteen sixty. Right, right. I'm sorry. Oh, I was, sorry. I was going back to talking about uh, to the old, yeah, to stagecoaching. Got it. The stagecoach is the archetypical. There's the cavalry fight the Indians, right? And like, yeah. and it's totally, and it's like, as long as the people who are on the stagecoach are okay, then like, we don't really care. Yeah, then society, the then yeah, then society is okay, right? Like, and yeah. and the stagecoach is a little microcosm of of society. Sorry, Mark, didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. yeah no, so, so the way that Pete described how this movie is make is careful to you know show how violence is used in appropriate fashion um i'm very curious to know how the byunghyun lee the korean actor his character um <laughs> either dispenses justice appropriately or uh, is dispensed of appropriately like what is going on with him and how does he fit into these old, old west archetypes or does he not at all I mean, he as as is all of the case where you're trying to sort of manually adjust things to make everybody happy. Sometimes you're going to do better than others. Uh, So his conceit is that he is a traveling gunfighter who also uses throwing knives because he's Asian and he uses throwing <laughs> knives. Natural, I, I use throwing knives uh, on this podcast because I'm Asian. You just don't hear them. because I'm shit. constantly ducking and dodging and dipping and, and ducking and dodging from the various throwing. You know what they say, if you can dodge a throwing knife, you can dodge a ball. But, um, <laughs> but, but he's a throwing knife duelist. And uh, Ethan Hawke is a former Confederate sharpshooter who has gone off into the Old West 
and uh, and and the former Confederate who has a lot of guilt on his conscience in order to make a living becomes the sort of the manager, the sort of pallbearer to uh, the Asian guy's undertaker where he but he arranges because the guy doesn't really speak English that well. So he arranges the duels and he arranges the betting and he arranges like the, the sort of shows. Right. He sort of becomes a show promoter, sort of like a Wild Bill Hickok kind of figure. Right. Um, I think I've got that right. Right. Um because some of the cowboy names that you know are from people who were actual outlaws, and some of them are mostly from people who did traveling Wild West shows, but weren't really, for most of their careers, actual cowboys, which is weird to think about, right? That some of the famous cowboys weren't ever really cowboys. Um, and, and that's interesting. And also because the time, the period that was the Old West was actually kind of short, as we recognize it in various parts of the country. But the, the point being that the Asian guy is is this sort of force of nature who's very difficult to kill but can't make a living because he doesn't speak English and he's in America and Ethan Hawke and he are buddies and um and then they kind of like and it's they the story unsurprisingly follows Ethan Hawke's pathos more than the Asian guy's personal ambitions and uh they end up just uh killed <laughs> they just they get killed mm. uh it's 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 like um uh, there's like a stakes rising. I mean, I guess I've spoiled it already, but, uh, at one point the bad guys show up with a Gatling gun and just start firing the Gatling gun into the whole town and basically killing everybody in the town that they can hit from the hillside next to the town. Oh, that's and that. That's the star killer base method yeah. <laughs> where you just, where you just blow up the entire universe that Chris Pratt has to destroy by making a noble sacrifice. Um, uh, but uh, basically it was what happens, but it's just like those guys get killed there. I don't, I'm sure I, I, I like to think that he gets a little bit more service than that, but of all of these sort of uh, colors of Benetton in that movie. And I don't mean to say that to diminish them. I mean, to say it to sort of diminish the studio a little bit for thinking that this kind of approach like solves all of their problems. I would almost rather watch a movie like Posse, like from back in the nineties with Tone Loke, uh, and, and really like just own that you're picking a different protagonist because of their race. Rather I guess than, if they uh, really wanted to, to borrow a phrase from Mel Brooks, ring the bell, they could have had Young uh, uh, Young Lee uh, be essentially a Chinese character who like, you know, uh, like liberates a bunch of Chinese uh, railroad workers from their yeah, they, horrible they do that in Blazing conditions. Saddles, but they don't do that in uh, I mean, they don't he doesn't liberate them. <laughs> he like dies. of they, The Chinese railroad workers are, are die of exhaustion or buried in mass graves in Blazing Saddles because <laughs> it's a comedy. Uh <laughs> <laughs> pretty much <laughs> because it, it stares unblinkingly in the face of horror and then goes da 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 so um i mean uh, you know honestly not to I, I know you don't want to trivialize things but that's not the worst approach of the i wouldn't make it shot for shot but like there's certain things in it that feel like it's the kind of the right way to go right <laughs> Yeah, uh, if you know, and and yes, the 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 sort of sensibilities change, but I, I wonder if there isn't if you can't sort of parse out a kind of humane, uh, like a more broadly humanistic intention at the, at the root of it that is expressed. It's all you know. I don't know if you can like if you are always trying to express a. Uh, a truth. You're always expressing it in a certain time and place under certain conditions, right? You're always in situation, um, yeah. as the existentialists uh, would say, right? You're not, and and whatever your uh, whatever your sort of um, broad-minded and and sort of abstract principle about sort of tolerance of difference or whatever, like you're always going to make that point 
from a particular place in the universe at a particular time uh, using the language that's available that's available to you uh, to you at the time. And I suppose this is, you know, uh, this is all well and good for me to say uh, as a uh, as a, you know, a, as a person who kind of lines up on the privileged side of every dichotomy that that uh every intersectional dichotomy that you could imagine but uh i wonder i wonder if we wouldn't do do well to sort of look at blazing saddles and say in some ways how is this more apt uh a response to yeah. to sort of social ills than than some of our far more sensitive far more evolved because they must be more evolved shouldn't aren't they uh ways of looking at at these problems these problems today and to sort yeah. of to come to celebrate uh what goes right about it rather than to to criticize the the numerous things that are available to criticize yeah i mean the, the things that the newer movies get better is the representation question i think which is a totally which is a separate question right but the idea that yeah, the the plight of Chinese railroad workers is handled more seriously and more honestly in Blazing Saddles than it is in The Magnificent Seven because it's not really a big part of the story and they bring in Asian guys for different reasons. And he's also Korean. He's not Chinese, but whatever. Uh, well, I don't remember what even it. I don't. I say whatever because in the old West, it's like then you start getting into things like Shanghai Noon, right? Uh, where it's like. <laughs> I mean, that's its own thing, right? That's exactly what you're talking about. That's another range. If there, if every cowboy has a range, and the cowboy is defined <laughs> by the range as much as by the cowboy, then Shanghai Noon has a specific range that it's going after, right? And, like, I would expect Shanghai Noon to, like, make differentiations between different kinds of Chinese guys and acknowledge that the protagonist is Chinese and connect it to, like, the Chinese Railroad Workers and the Chinese Exclusion Act and all this stuff, right? Like, I would expect those things to happen. But in, like... When you're when you're doing something like the new Magnificent Seven, it's like I don't really expect this movie to take the Asian kung fu growing star duelist guy and treat his ethnicity with any degree of real sophistication. Well, no, or, because, or, I mean, or, or or honesty, right? Like, uh, but at the same time, there is an Asian actor in Magnificent Seven with a big part, which there is not in Blazing Saddles. Sure, which is what I was getting around to, right? Like that that it does not get right. Right. Like um, it doesn't create jobs. It still has mostly a white well, cast. And this this was I mean, not to be an, an apologist for John Ford uh, or Tom Ford, I, neither of the Fords. Am I an apologist <laughs> for? But uh, when when he was criticized um, later in his career about the the depiction, about the representation of Native Americans in his movies, uh his defense was that he hired he made local hires on his sets and actually hired native americans and gave them jobs and he had this he had this sort of uh uh this the um this materialist non-representational uh, defense, which is at least a point of view that that I mean, it, it's at least a point it, of it's view. It's a that, piece of the puzzle, yeah, right? It's that, piece of the puzzle, and, and I think it hangs together as an argument. Whether whether you're ultimately convinced by it, it's at least it it it's a colorable argument that uh, that you know rather than rather than lip service, uh, he paid wallet service, and that is to a certain extent a, a, a more laudable thing. Guys, I feel like we could go on uh, forever and ever, but I think it's it's time for us to nestle down in our uh in our beds safe at home in the town while the cowboy of this podcast rides off uh on the range to uh to protect us from 
I don't know, to protect us from uh, uh, bad comments in the comment section. I don't know. They're, they're always killer, out there. Killer robots. <laughs> for, killer for, robots that for, are going to uprise against us. For Chanic discourse. The savages out there uh, on the other sites on the internet that aren't, <laughs> that aren't overthinking it. So thanks very much, uh, panel. Thank you, Pete and Mark, for doing this podcast. And thank you uh, for listening. Um, if you're still having technical problems with the podcast feed, podcast at overthinkingit.com. Send me an email and uh, tell me the details of it. I will be very glad to know that. Um, and, uh, and thanks for bearing with us while we had the, uh, while, uh, we worked through the issues. Uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Gosh, I guess I'm not going to save a horse and ride a cowboy after all. Gross.